Hey guys, it's Sean, and today on the podcast, I sit down with Brad Slingerland, who is the co-founder and investor at NZS Capital. Now, NZS stands for non-zero sum, or win-win type outcomes, and that's what Brad looks for, and the team at NZS, that's what they look for. And the reason I wanted to have Brad on the show is he really is one of those out-of-the-box thinkers who's going to expand how we think about the world, how we approach our craft, and everything else that we do. And we hit on a few themes today that I think are applicable no matter what we're doing in life. And one of them is how studying ants and biology has improved his investing ability and also how he makes decisions in the real world. And he also talks about a mental model he uses called slowing down time to make better decisions. And then we explore how to develop, how to think about creating and cultivating high-performing teams. So if you want an interesting, fascinating, wide-ranging conversation, then enjoy this one with Brad Slinger. Uh. What got you there? What got you, got you? What got you there? I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is just a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitzkin, Michael Jordan, Bob Iger, Bruce Lee, Nick Saban, and many more. I also have 50-plus book recaps of my favorite reads. So you can find everything I just mentioned and more at whatgotyouthere.com. After five plus years learning from hundreds of the world's most successful people, I've taken the most important practices and lessons and distilled them down into my online course called You Unleash, which is going to help you become the person you know you're capable of becoming. Now, You Unleash is going to help you break free of your old habits and excuses. It's going to eliminate your limiting beliefs and start taking action in ways that will actually get you results. Now, the course has a proven curriculum that has helped people just like you take action towards creating the life they've dreamed of. Well, now it's your turn. You Unleash, though, isn't a quick fix. It's not a magic pill. It doesn't involve empty promises or lofty goals. Instead, it's a roadmap to your true potential. So are you ready to eliminate those fears and become that fully unleashed version of yourself? If so, enroll now by clicking the link below or heading to whatgotyouthere.com. Brad, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Uh, good, good. Uh, thanks for having me, Sean. No, very excited to dive into this here. A lot more about you, how you think about the world. Uh, this is going to be a wide-ranging conversation, but I'd love to, to start off and, and just wonder, well, I wonder a lot about how people think and their mindsets. And I would love to know, is there a mindset of yours that you feel has just been incredibly beneficial to your life and your own trajectory? Yeah, I think the the biggest one is sort of letting go of this concept that we can predict the future. I think that it's something in, in my profession, which is investments, is something we're in particular ingrained to believe from the start is that if I gain a certain amount of knowledge or a certain way of thinking or a certain framework or something that I'll be able to somehow know something, you know, about the potential future direction of the world and from complex adaptive systems, which I'm sure we'll get into, the science there and the philosophy behind that, just this letting go of like, I might be able to identify a range of outcomes, but I simply can't predict the future. And that is, a, I think, a transformational uh, 
mindset shift that's been helpful for me that that uh, and also really hard to let go of and you still sort of fall back into the pattern but constantly resetting myself saying like as yeah, I you know I don't know being sort of the three most important words uh, that I could say yeah great words right there I'm wondering for you then like how or what time period did you come across this is this something you you had from an early age or did it take a lot of trial and error before you really got to that place no, I, I think it was, it's certainly more recent. Um, so it was probably a little over 10 years ago when uh, my business partner, Brenton Johns, who I started NZS Capital with, and I started really diving deep into complex adaptive systems and under, you know, which was an effort to understand um, mistakes that we had made as investors. We wanted to know, like, why did we make these mistakes? Could we find an explanation for it? And uh, that really led us down the path of complex adaptive systems, the Santa Fe Institute, and realizing that, oh, nobody can predict the future. The smartest people in the world can't predict it. And so why would we think that we could? It, it makes me think you actually having the the humility to question your own assumptions, even explore your own past mistakes. I'm wondering for you, just with the kind of ability to look back now, are there things you wish you had known and done earlier in your career or focused on? Um, I don't think so. I think you, everyone has to go sort of on a path, right? So if you, if you, if you, it's hard for me to go back and say, oh, if I had been on a different path, um, learn something earlier or later, I don't sort of don't even know what I have yet to learn, but I'm sure there's a lot of it. Uh, I, I don't know that there was anything different. I would have loved to have stumbled on complex systems a little earlier, um, might've ch changed things for me, but I do think we tend to you know, I think I probably wouldn't have been open to it, you know, if I, you know, if I had been come across it in my, you know, early in my career, when I had sort of a lot of preconceived notions about the world around me, I'm not, I'm not sure it would have registered. So I think things tend to hit and sink in when they're, when it's sort of when your brain is ready for them to, to sink in. And I'm sure there's things I came across 10 years ago that didn't sink in that I might come across five years from now that are going to, make a total make you know make total sense to me yeah that old chinese proverb when the student is ready the teacher appears seemed to, to hold a lot of weight there yeah. I, I, yeah I am wondering though like everyone is obviously on their own journey if, were there any interesting inflection points for you that that really started to change that journey for yourself well i think i think it was um probably um two two books um one uh was the origin of wealth by eric beinhocker and another was complexity by by Waldrop. And those are both sort of complexity very much telling the history of the Santa Fe Institute and then origin of wealth sort of re-examining economics through the lens of in, in many ways complex systems. And then around that same time, a third book called uh, Non-Zero uh, by Robert Wright, uh, which talks about how uh, effectively positive sum outcomes in game theory have been this driving force throughout uh, human history. And sort of connecting all those dots together was just, you know, happened to all take place around 2011, 2012 um, for, for me. And that was just sort, sort of, I think, a turning point in terms of my understanding of or attempted to, to understand the way things work in the world. Uh, now that you've been able to look back, were there other things kind of circulating around in your brain or interesting conversations you were having that helped those three books really frame things for you? 
I think it was just coincidence. Mm. You know, I think that one of these things is we'd like to go back and try and draw uh, conclusions or create stories that may not have happened. But I think it was just luck, coincidence, and then being open. I just think the biggest thing is just being open to new information and and just being very willing to change your mind when when evidence is presented that that you're wrong or there's a better way to think about things and um that i hope hopefully has been a characteristic that i've had going back further um you know just from my educational background which is more in um science more more in physics and just sort of deeply rooted in the scientific method and just always knowing like, okay, well, there's new evidence. Now everything I believed before that I totally thought was true, I just need to throw out. And now I need to take in the new evidence. So. Yeah, it's a really good foundation to uh, to build how you're going to think about the, the future moving forward. I, I am curious though, the name non-zero sum and ZS Capital, where, where did that come from? How'd you guys decide to go with that? Yeah, so it it is so this is I think one of the if I was going to sort of identify a second thing that was really important to, to me in terms of my my framework on the world. The first being you can't predict the future, and so I don't know is the most important thing you can say. That's the starting point to going and figuring out what you can know is by saying I don't know. And then the second thing is just thinking biologically, and so um, a lot of us, particularly in investing or in the business world, are trained really mathematically, economically. Um, I would say it's more of a we have more of a linear training in terms of thinking linear, um, and a lot of the systems and things we learn about macroeconomics and microeconomics t- tend to feel very linear. But the world's very nonlinear, and biologically, it's not something evolution prepared us for to think nonlinear. It's sort of a, there's a high cost to it. So if I sort of act as if I can prepare for every possible nonlinear outcome, like we're going to have 10 droughts in a row, 10, you know, we're going to miss 10 planting seasons in a row. Like it's, it's almost paralyzing. So almost like we can't think nonlinear without being paralyzed. And so, but if you look at biological systems, uh, there's a, there's a couple of things that, that stand out. And one of them is this concept of non-zero sum, which is that if so basically if two, it's just a geeky way of saying win-win. And it basically just means if two agents in an ecosystem come together and have a transaction, they both leave better off. You know, so if like you have an apple and I have an apple and we trade and we both still have an apple, that's like a zero sum transaction, right? But if you have a granola bar and I have an apple and you're really hungry for an apple and I'm really hungry for a granola bar and we trade. And we walk, we walk away both better off and ha- have we not, you know, crossed each other's paths. And then there's ways where there's a negative sum transaction. And a lot of what we see in the world around us um, and businesses and investing tends to be negative sum. It's like somebody's disproportionately benefiting at the expense of someone else, whether it's an employee, a supplier, uh, a customer, an investor. And so we're you know, looking at NZS Capital for these positive sum, these win-win outcomes. And we see this just th- throughout biology, like in, in, you know, all kinds of ecosystems where you've got symbiotic relationships, you've got parasitic relationships, but it's the generally the, the constituents that are creating the most win-win that sort of have that higher probability of surviving. And then tied very closely to that is this concept of adaptability, and so we sort of believe that adaptability is the most powerful characteristic of of anything, whether it's you, you know in your personal life, the business you're running, the invest the way you're investing, 
And that that's another thing we see in biology that that comes out of evolution, fitness functions. And so this thinking biologically, non-zero-sum adaptability closely tied into co- complex systems, which are really useful at explaining um, or trying to explain uh, bi- biological, complex biological systems. And so I think this, we think this concept of non-zero sum is everything. And so that's, you know, these, this, this ability to create win-win outcomes. And so that's why we named the, our company after it. No, I love the name much earlier in, in my life. I definitely was kind of competitive, like <laughs> winner takes all. Um, so these positive sum win, win type scenarios, uh, I think are things I look for. One of the reasons I, I appreciate the name there, uh, there, there's a lot, Brad, I want to dive into there, especially around biology. Cause I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, wait a second, I, I thought Brad said he's an investor. Why is he talking biology and how's this influencing <laughs> his decision-making so much? So I think it'd be helpful if we frame it with you just diving into complex adaptive systems, defining them, and then how they've influenced your thinking. And then we kind of go down the rabbit hole from there yeah so complex systems kind of to put it simply are is basic well basically to put it simply is everything is 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 really pretty much a complex system and uh what what it what it means more scientifically is when you have a bunch of agents interacting with each other it's like people in an economy you know animals in the ocean whatever it is things interacting um that emergent behavior comes about. So something happens that wouldn't happen if if these agents weren't interacting. And so we see this all the time, um, you know, in, in the economy where things are just unexpected, things are happening, you just unpredictable because all of these complex, I mean, just to think about like the last few years with the the pandemic and the the war in the Ukraine and and uh what's happened with gas prices and it's just like wildly complex and you just can't no matter how much you try, you can't. You couldn't have sat down in 2019 and predicted any of this. Yeah. And so, the, and the other element of this is that the the beginning conditions can heavily sort of cascade throughout the system. So this is more the concept of chaos, where uh, a small change at the at the beginning of an interaction, like a slightly different setup, might create a, you know sort of just a wildly nonlinear outcome. And so we see a lot of things in these these systems that people are familiar with, like increasing returns, like, you know, the big get bigger. Um, things tend to be um, follow more of a power law math, so an exponential curve as opposed to, a, you know, we tend to think in like normal distributions, these bell curves. Um, that's usually wrong, you know, when we hear about something is like, oh, uh, you know, you know, uh, like, seven or eight standard deviation event took place. Like this shouldn't happen in a million years. And then it's like happening every week. And you're like, well, maybe the math, maybe we shouldn't be thinking about standard deviations. Maybe maybe there's a different math that we should be thinking about. And that's what complex systems gives us that that basis. And it's applicable across, you know, um, you know, Santa Fe Institute, which is really the home of, of complex system science in, in New Mexico, um, you know, really covers the gamut from biology to economics, sociology, computer science, uh, you know, mathematics. It's it's really multidisciplinary. So then can you actually dive into how you take that and the tenets of complexity investing? Like what are the framework that you've built your investing thesis on? Yeah, so so we put this together in a paper. Um, it's called Complexity Investing. We we the first draft of it was um outlined um 10 years ago this October. Um we started it in 2012. We published the first official draft publicly in 2014. One of the things we believe in, in terms of being non-zero sum, is we pr- basically we publish everything we write because 
some people would say like, well, that's crazy that you're giving your entire strategy away, but we, you know, that that's the concept of non-zero sum as we meet interesting people, we learn, we get criticism and feedback, the system gets better. We're hopefully helping people out and that's just what we do. So, so we, so we put that out there and, and I think the, the, the biggest takeaway is where we started, which is when you, when you go through and you sort of internalize this concept of complex adaptive systems that these interacting agents create these underpredictable outcomes, you say, Oh, okay. I can't, predict the future. So what am I supposed to do? Like, what's my role now? And that's what complexity investing walks through. And so the, the main thing from, um, so, so it, 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 it focuses us on, uh, non-zero sum outcomes, adaptability, you know, innovation, um, companies that are geared towards long-term thinking, uh, network effects and increasing returns. These are all characteristics of winning companies as the economy goes through this massive analog to digital transition, which we're maybe five or 10% of the way through. So think about the sort of the shift to the industrial age, which took, you know, hundreds of years and then the information age. And we're really going into the sort of digital era where every, anything that's done in an analog way will end up having some sort of digital um, mechanism enabling it over the future. And we think these are the characteristics you look for. And then importantly, as it relates directly to investing, as it informs um, portfolio construction. And so this is where we took the learnings from complex systems and said, okay, let's look at our mistakes we've made over the last decade or so as investors. And is there a pattern here? You know, what, what is it that that stands out? And, it, and the, the thing we tended to find is that ourselves and a lot of other investors will take what's effectively a narrow prediction about the future. So like everything has to happen the way you think it's going to happen. And they'll make that a large position in the portfolio because the thinking is, well, if I'm right, this is going to pay off hugely and I'm going to have really great performance. But what it fails to recognize is that you can't get all those predictions right. So what you've done is you've put a very risky position at the top of the portfolio. So we realized we needed to invert that. And what we needed to do is match the position size as we're investing and putting a portfolio together with the potential range of outcomes and the, the and the predictions that we're making. So for making a very safe prediction, and so an example of a safe prediction would be, uh, I think that. Uh, anything that can benefit from having electronics and being connected to the internet will ultimately have electronics in it and be connected to the internet. So that's the fairly safe. There's worlds where that prediction is not true, but in most of the future worlds, if something can benefit from from effectively becoming digital, it it will probably become digital. And so then there's some, and then you go, okay, well, who who creates that? Who are the semiconductor companies? Who are the software companies that? that enable that. And it's sort of like these, so we're making a single safe, broad prediction that these companies will continue to be important in the economy. And then contrast that with a narrow prediction, which is, which is like, well, um, uh, let's take Tesla, for example. So uh, Tesla is, uh, um, you know, early on in its, stages you know nearly went bankrupt uh, they're sort of creating a new market they had to create a new drivetrain the battery technology uh you know everything that went into it and so it's effectively like a like a parlay bet like this had to happen this had to happen this had to happen 
the world needed to embrace EVs, the charging infrastructure needed to take place, the battery capacity needed to go in. It was a series of narrow predictions. And so you would, we would never want to take something like that and put it at the top of the portfolio. We would have that at the bottom of the portfolio. And only when it turned into a broad prediction, let's say there's some future scenario, it's not today, but say five or 10 years from now, where uh, Tesla creates a power law in automobiles, which wouldn't be surprising that somebody does that. Because when we see industries go from analog to digital, power law winners tend to emerge. Um, you know, look at Amazon and e-commerce, Google in, in search. Uh, those are good examples of that. So if they were to create a power law where all of a sudden it's like, oh, Tesla might end up with 80% market share of passenger uh, EVs and EVs are going to end up being 80% of the total car market. And so therefore now it's a safe, broad prediction. And so it's, it's inverting that. And then there's one final bit of it, which is, um, uh, and I should say, so we, we, we call those, um, broad predictions, resilient businesses, and these narrow predictions, optionality businesses. And so it's, it's these two types of stocks that you can have. And like I said, we often saw portfolio managers invert it and they would have their big positions as optionality names, and they would own their resilient positions too small to matter in the portfolio. And then the final part is that that's all you own. You don't own anything in between. So if a business is either neither resilient nor optionality or a combination of resilience with optionality, then you don't own it. And uh, that was a mistake we found that we made is we would hang on to a business too long after it had sort of gone past its prime or we would let a position get too big where but but it was still very risky. And so we squeezed the middle of the portfolio out. We only own large positions and small positions. And so that's the final thing. So all of those came out of understanding complex adaptive systems and say, how do we take the science and apply it to investing? Got you. So, so just to make sure I'm clear. So you've basically got a, a barbell strategy. You got resilience on one side, optionality on the other. So there's nothing in the middle. Resilience, you got, let's call it less than 5% of the portfolio, right? Like three, 4% in those companies that are basically already onto something. They're a little bit safer bet. And then you've got optionality, which will probably be less than 1% of the overall portfolio. Um, and then you readjust based on how those optionality uh, companies play out. Is that correct? Yeah. So in terms of position size, we own a smaller number of larger positions in optionality and then a larger number of smaller positions in, uh, I'm sorry, a, <laughs> a smaller number of larger positions in resilience and a larger number of smaller positions in optionality. And there's some good charts in the paper because it's a little bit confusing um, to how we think about it. And this is what works for us. And I think it's important to say that everybody needs to find the, the type of investing style that works for them. But we do think this focus on portfolio construction is really missing. And so when, when we look at a lot of, and there's a lot of great, there's a ton of great investors in, in the world who, who we admire. And we think there's basically three components to successful long-term investing. The first is finding good companies to invest in. We think that's the easiest. We actually think most people with a modest amount of training can say, this is a good company. This is a bad company. It's not, that's not, terribly hard. We have a set of characteristics that we hope help us weed through and find the better companies, but we think a lot of people are capable of it. The next most important part is the, that portfolio construction. Once you find them, how do you match the position size to the range of outcomes? We think most people are actually pretty bad at that. And we, we still make mistakes about it too, but we just see a lot of people focus on that first one. Like I'm just going to find great companies and and invest in them. And they don't think about what are the predictions I'm making and what's the potential that they may or may not come true? Why, why and then the third part, which is the, 
I'm What's just that? curious, before you jump into the third part, I'm just curious, why do you think it is that most people actually aren't good at the portfolio construction side of it? I don't know. And I don't, and I don't want to say, maybe I shouldn't even say most, but, you know, we looked at it, you know, a lot of, most everybody in the investing community, their, their holdings are public uh, or, or you can sort of get at them in, in some way. And so you can see, and we just see a lot of inverted predictions across a lot of even smart investors where um, it seems like they're not, they're sort of more focused on what's the upside as opposed to what's the downside and what the range of outcomes is. And I don't know, I think there's maybe not a lot of, you know, investing is kind of strange where you end up with a lot of like star systems where you have one person who dominates a culture at a firm and maybe there's not enough mentoring or there's not enough ability to think critically. And I think it, it sort of leads into what the, we think is the, the third part about ha having good long-term returns. And it's the most important one, which is the team culture. And so we think a lot of people can find good businesses. <clears throat> you know, you can figure out a good portfolio construction process eventually if, you, if you're really thoughtful about it. But then maintaining a high-functioning team over time that's making these complex decisions uh, fraught with cognitive bias is basically impossible. Mm -hmm. And so what Brent and I have done, and, and there's four of us on the investment team, we've worked together. Brent and I have worked together since 2003. Um, John and Joe since 2008 and 2006, respectively, we, we've known each other, is try to cultivate this ability to argue ideas without arguing with the person. And that's really hard. So you have to create this sort of safe environment to say, you're wrong about this. Here's why. Here's the bias in your system. Um, here's what crept into your process. Here's the story you're telling that, that I think is not true. And to debate that, to try and figure out what, what, predictions are we really making here and are they likely to possibly come true or not without making it personal without saying like you know i'm not saying you're wrong i'm saying that uh it's impossible to make decisions without cognitive bias sort of taking over and we don't see it in ourselves you know if you've ever been in an argument with a, somebody or a business partner or someone in your personal life and you're like why does this person not see this this clear bias in their thinking and it's like, well, they're thinking the same thing about you. It's just really hard. We're sort of evolution has you know, led us to a point where we protect ourselves from thinking that we're dumb. <laughs> you know, we always think we're right. And so having a team that can overcome that is is probably the most important part. And I think that's hard, hard culture, investment culture to create and maintain for a very long period of time uh, inside of investment organization. I think that's perhaps why people fail on some of the other points, especially around portfolio construction and mentoring and, and those important qualities. So then if you were starting out today, how would you think about the creation of that high performing team? Well, it's, it's, um, it's, it's hard. I mean, you, you have to, you have to really treat it like, a so come back to biology, you have to treat it like a living organization. So you have to make sure it's getting oxygen. Um, you have to make sure that um, there's no cancer growing. And what I mean by that is like, <clears throat> you don't want resentment to build. You don't want um, one person who, who's sort of creating a tension, like an unresolved tension. You've got to basically go in and actively say uh, like, hey, you're off the team because this isn't working. And we, you know, we have been doing this a, a long time. Um 
you know, I started managing a team of analysts in first in 2003. And you can see when there's, you can feel when there's something off about the system. It's like when you, it's like, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you realize you didn't sleep well, you're like, you know, there's some tension here. Um, you know, I need to take a beat today and, and, and try and, and, and conserve some energy and feel better. And that's the way these organizations are. You've got to, and sometimes removing somebody from a team just like floods oxygen back, back into the system. And so th- there's a lot of little things around that, um, that, 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 that go into how do you create a high functioning team? But I think it's that vigilance and just making sure it's operating. There's anything is different for every industry. So investing, one of the things I think is really important is that um, it, it may be true of any team making complex, important decisions is you shouldn't spend very much time together. Uh, and so I think, think yeah, I, I yeah, see like a lot there. of organizations. Yeah. So I see a lot of, yeah, I think a lot of, you know, let's say I have a a new investment idea I'm working on and <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to, the only thing I can possibly do as a human is tell a story about this, about an investment. Cause we're storytelling machines. Like that's what we do is we try and make sense of the world. And we tell a story about it. So hopefully the story I come up with is true. Like hopefully I've asked the right questions. I found the right information and I think I've got a chance at this story, having not let a lot of cognitive bias creep into it, having a chance at coming true over time. Um, but I don't know. I want, what I need is someone to objectively say, here's where your story might be false. Here's where you're letting one of the sort of zillion types of cognitive biases that it can, can creep into the, decision-making process come in. But if I've spent a lot of time with people, let's say I've gone to coffee and lunch and sort of whiteboarded something with somebody. And, and, you know, so before I go to actually tell a story, uh, you know, to say what my predictions are or what I think they might be um, effectively, I've already convinced everybody in the team of my own bullshit. And so you've got the whole team now who believes my story before they've had a chance to objectively tear it apart. Mm. And so what we try and do when we're presenting new ideas is we do occasionally, if we're having a hard time thinking through something, um, you talk to one other person on the team, um, but we'd rather it be fresh. Just be, we say like, here's the homework, go, you know, you think about this. And then we come, you know, we, we basically send homework to the rest of the team at least a day before we're going to meet to talk about a new idea, which we do once a week. And, and then we say, you know, come in and I'm not going to present it. I'm not going to pitch it because those are, that's me trying to convince you of something. Everyone just has read it, has tried to do a little independent homework. Now let's argue about it. But if we've spent all this time together on a day-to-day basis, um, convincing each other that, that we're all smart and, you know, I mean, I think group think is like the common way to think about this, but I think it's much it's much deeper than just groupthink. I think groupthink has a lot of sort of hierarchical dimensions that come into it. Um, this is more like, um, you know, just I don't want someone else to absorb my bias. And so if we can, you know, maintain that independence. So what you want is a high functioning team that gets along really well, that doesn't spend every waking hour together and tries to tries to come to conclusions and do the job, everybody do the job differently. And so we get some sort of, heterogeneity in the way we're thinking about the world. 
I love this stuff because it's so art as opposed to science, right? There's so many variables here. There's so much nuance. I'm, I'm saying that because I'm curious. You mentioned spending time apart actually helps avoid some of these biases. It helps you shoot down some of these ideas. What about building psychological safety and trust? How do you factor in total time? Just because you mentioned some of the people that are core to your team and <clears throat> all, all of you have been together, it sounds like 10 plus, 15 plus years. Yeah, well, there just has to be this understanding that you know, the, uh, so in investing, it's like, like I said, I think anybody can find a good business, but almost nobody can do that without letting bias creep into their process. So if everybody on the team understands that, so you're basically coming in saying, Hey, we're all smart. Um, we're smart enough. Let's, let's say that at least, um, to do this job, let's help each other do this job. And then there's a lot of subtle things. And again, it depends on the type of organization, the type of customer you're serving. But for an investment organization, we think for an investment team serving investing clients, um, you know, we think alignment's really important. So like the way we solve that is um, we're all owners of the firm. And effectively, if our we don't do well for our clients, then we don't do well. Like that's, it's just, that's, it's, it's that simple. And a lot of other organizations, compensation is set up so that the individual can do well, but the client might not. And there might be incentives for someone to say, let's own my stock so I get credit for it, even if I like your idea better. And that doesn't work for the client. You know, it might work for that person for a short period of time. But so I think it's important to set things up, um, you know, flat, uh, flat organization, uh, 100% alignment with what the client objective is, and that you know, you only do well when the client does well. If the client does well, you don't you don't do well. And a lot of organizations, investment organizations, are not set up like that. That you know, they use all kinds of systems to where people, you know, investors do well even if the clients aren't doing that well, which is you know tragic. And so our goal is to avoid that. You know, that from 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 the get go when we when we started NZS was to um, back in 2019 was to to avoid all those potential conflicts and. And um, have it, you know, as, as clean and aligned as possible. Well, gets back to complex systems that really early starting conditions can massively um, influence the outcome yeah. again. There, yeah. No, I, I love how that. Yeah, all that's goes. right. Yeah, we spent we spent a lot of time thinking about that. We, you know, we talk about resilience and optionality, and we said, well, how do we build a resilient business? How do we build a resilient business? What's our what's our potential optionality? And so, part of that is we, you know, we do these um, uh, pre mortems, which are another really important part of a of uh, a team trying to trying to make these complex decisions, you actually try to put yourself in the future and say, um, you know, where did it go wrong? Why? What questions could we have asked at the starting point to keep that outcome from happening? Or where did it go right? Uh, how did it go so much better than we ever thought it possibly could go? You know, what questions could we have asked and answered at the beginning to create that setup. And so we do that for every investment we look at as we do a negative and a positive pre-mortem, sort of looking at the the worst case and, and then the the best case outcome. And and you know, we absolutely did that when we started NZS. We said, we said, where are all the because like most people don't don't succeed when they do that. We've been very lucky so far that that it's gone well, but uh, we really spent a lot of time thinking like, where are the vulnerabilities? How do we take those out of the equation? You know, how do we solve for that as best we can? Is, is there anything else you were doing just at the the start or even the early days that most people just kind of, they go overlooked or they just don't think enough about? 
you know, maybe just obsessively trying to ask as many questions as we can. Like, you know, I, I think these, these pre-mortems are so important because if you can sit there and go like, okay, what are the 10 ways that inv new investment firms fail? And maybe you can go out and talk to some people. And I think this is true of any, any type of company in any industry that you're starting and say, okay, are those, are, are some of those avoidable? Are some of them not? And what you'll find is some of them are avoidable. So like having uh, misaligned incentives is that's avoidable. Like you can make it so that incentives are correctly aligned. And a lot of people don't do that. They don't, they don't think through it clearly. Um, uh, but then you find a lot of them aren't uh, avoidable. And you realize like, okay, um, let's um, just make up a number. Let's say half of these reasons that new firms fail are avoidable, but half of them are just total crazy luck and coincidences and, you know, good luck and bad luck. <clears throat> and I think that's just really important is to look back, look forward and look back and say, how much of that was luck? And I think most people, especially investors, over-attribute skill and they under-attribute luck. And both in things that happened and the things that happen in the future. And, you know, it's mostly luck. I, I mean, you know, you've got to try and set things up so that when luck comes knocking, you open the door. But, you know, I think that's what a lot of people don't understand is it's just you could just solve for as many things as possible, but then may not go well and just keep trying to adjust as you go along the way to say, you know, okay, now, now how might it go badly or how might it go really well? And I think that's one of the things that complex systems, I think it's overlooked in complex systems is, is that they also really tell you just how well things can be. So a lot of times people will focus on like, I guess sort of like a, a, a stoicism of I'm going to just sort of like assume the worst or prepare for the worst or something like that. Right. But what's missed in that is uh, things can go really well. Things can go way better than you possibly expect. And this is this idea of increasing returns, um, which are really which are highly prevalent in, in complex systems where you get these just runaway positive effects. So like, could you know, when I was using the Tesla example, could there be an increasing returns to, um, you know, all these things around EVs that are happening with, with battery capacity, with the data, with the, with the, uh, you know, driver assistance technology that, you know, that just create these power law winners. And I think we often focus too much on the negative outcomes. But so the other thing we think about at NZS is like, how do we make sure we're prepared if things go really, really well for us? Hmm. Like, you know, what is the employee that we need? What are the characteristics of that employee? What is the infrastructure that we need on the IT side? You know, so it's it's not just what can go wrong. It's like, hey, this could actually go right. And let's not let's not miss that. Let's not keep this thing from going really well. Let's make sure that we capture that as that that other side of the luck spectrum, not just the bad luck, but the good luck. Well, this has me thinking about some of the things that we've all been talking about the last 10 minutes here, right? Like high performing teams, thinking about getting the conditions right early. <clears throat> and then you mentioned even like hiring people. So I'm just curious how you actually think about if you were to add a member to the team. What are you looking for just to, to set NZS up for, for a better outcome here in the future based on hiring? Yeah, I'm going to probably might regret saying this right now, but um, we, we are looking to add another member to the team. Um, and so it is something we think about a lot. Um, and I won't, I won't say that's new. We're always looking to potentially add somebody to the team, but there's a few, there's a few elements to it, which is so first of all, that 
the trust and the psychological safety and the, you know, all those things, you've got to make sure somebody is just all about being a team player. Mm-hmm. Like there's just, there's just, we don't want any individuals. Um, we want people to all think differently. We want a diversity of thought. We want a diversity of, of person in terms of their background, their upbringing, where they come from, their view of the world. Um, but they've got to be part of the team and, and really be part of that. And that's really hard to solve. Um, it's really hard to find someone with a lot of experience um, in an industry and bring them in and say, forget everything you learned, you've thought about the world wrong. So hope, so hopefully it's someone who has, you know, found complex systems on their own or certain attributes of it um, or, or comes across it and says, oh, that actually, that's how I think about the world. I'm finally, you know, I'm so glad to have a way that, to frame it now and think about it in a more disciplined way. Um, so it is usually easier to find someone who has less, doesn't, I don't want to say younger, but just less experience. So it doesn't have to be somebody from the investment industry, um, <clears throat> you know, at all. I and mean, you sort of like helpful to have a basic understanding of, of fi- finance, but b- beyond that, there's, there's no real, you know, economics training is kind of a negative unless you can <laughs> completely forget about it. Um, and, uh, you know, there's not, you know, business school doesn't necessarily make you um, better at identifying good businesses. And in a lot of ways, it it sort of trains you in the analog world of the industrial age, right? A lot of, a lot of classes and textbooks and, you know, Porter's five forces are just things that don't like apply to the world anymore. Those, those were analog pre-digital pre-information concepts. So you don't, if if you have that baggage, you want to be able to shake it, meaning you want to be able to just, someone who is super curious and can say, um, uh, oh yeah, uh, what I believe is not true. This new information is really interesting. And those, those people are hard to come by. Um, <clears throat> and it's kind of that curiosity or that ability to, um, you know, really be fine with saying I'm wrong and I, I can't know the future and this new information changes my mind and, those are kind of harder things to learn. I, mean, I don't think they're unlearnable. Um, um, I, I think I hopefully have learned them and didn't, you know, I don't think I thought that way 20 years ago at all. So I think you can learn them, but it's harder to curiosity is one thing I think is a little bit hard to learn late in life. Either you tend to be a curious person or you tend to sort of just take the world as it is. Um, that That's too much of a generalization, but, um, and, and then the other thing is like the, the only way to improve your own process is to teach it to someone else. So you've got to be, you know, mentoring, have someone who, you you know, uh, if you're not sort of constantly explaining what you do to people, then you kind of get in your own ruts and you almost forget what it is that you do. Hmm. Uh, but when you get these opportunities to teach people what it is, um, and then, and then you learn from the way in which they learn it. And so having someone so sort of constantly having, you don't want to have a team of a bunch of people who've been working together for a long time who aren't teaching it to anybody anymore, because then they're not learning and they're not improving their process. So we worry about that. So we want to make sure that we have a flow of people we're teaching to. This is, again, one of the reasons why we publish all these papers, when we send the newsletter out is because that you know, if we're not specifically sort of teaching someone ourselves on the team who works for the company, um, we want to be teaching as many people as possible so we can get that feedback and we can we can learn from it. So those are the things that go through our head. And then it's <clears throat> and then I think importantly, 
if you hire somebody and it's the wrong person, fix that problem really quickly <laughs> and just say, Hey, uh, there's been a mistake here. And this was, you know, this wasn't the fit that we thought and just and move on and don't let that sort of cancer grow in the organization. If it's not a, a, a good, good fit. This makes me think then, um, I guess this could be a bit nuanced, but mentioning mentoring. So say you do hire this new person, what does that actually look like in terms of say Brad actually teaching them? Is this like fully hands-on? I, I know this is kind of nuanced. I'm just <clears> curious <throat> how you think about this because we have a lot of leaders who listen to the show and they're thinking about developing young talent. And I'm just wondering how you would approach that. Yeah, I think it's different for, <clears throat> so it really depends on where the person's coming from. So if someone comes in and has like no background in finance, it's like, here's the basics. Here's how balance sheet and cash flow and and you know income statement all tied together and why is that important and how you know how, you know how does the the funding work but it's more just kind of <clears throat> um <clears throat> teaching this framework of how to think about the world how, how to think about complex systems and sort of you know um you know teaching bayesian logic which is basically you take your starting point and then you take in new information and you adjust your starting point up or down or sideways depending on what that new information is it's that way of learning that way of thinking, um, teaching people about, you know, cognitive biases that come into the decision-making process, but it's really just more through absorption. It's just, um, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> being part of the process and contributing and asking questions. And it's encouraging people to ask questions, just be like, you know, this doesn't make sense. Ask me a question about it because it might be wrong. <laughs> Something that I've thought to be true for a decade could be totally wrong. And if you think that, you know, say it, yeah. you know, let's figure it out. Let's, let's debate it. Let's not let something linger. And so making it really <clears throat> two way is how I think the person learns faster and then you improve your own process and in, in doing that. Yeah. It gets back to kind of being willing to say, I don't know, also building that trust, that psychological safety, uh, a word you m used a minute ago, uh, absorption. This has me really intrigued now. I know you're, you're so interested in so many different things. Say you could do this, go study underneath someone for, let's just call it a year. And this doesn't have to be someone specific to investing, but who would you love to just absorb as much information from as possible? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> well, if I, it would definitely be just hanging out at the, at the Santa Fe Institute. Um, because they just have some of the most interesting folks in the world. But um, a couple of people who I know have even been on your your podcast, um, I believe in the past, which is you know Brian Arthur, um, the Economist, and uh, you know Jeffrey West, who has just some of the most fascinating ideas about um, how systems scale, how big complex organizations scale up and die, because <laughs> very few of them end up really being having that longevity. And so <clears throat> there's just a whole, a whole group of people. I mean, Sean Carroll, who, who is a, um, a, a physicist and cosmologist and also now working, I think, at John Hopkins in the Department of Philosophy uh, and is an external uh, faculty member at the Santa Fe Institute. Um, has written some incredible books. And I just would love to just this, what is a different way of thinking about the world that I'm not? thinking about. And so these people who have the, this multidisciplinary approach, I wish I had more of that. And I wish, you know, there could be, you know, I'm just sure there's something I could, I could learn from that. Um, independent of, of, of that, it's almost like anybody doing anything artistic because I don't want to name any specific artists, but um, <clears throat> just 
uh, it's just another way of thinking about the world and things change the fastest in the art world. And so um, there's this concept called pace layers from that, that Stuart brand put forth that basically says like there's certain parts of the world, like geology change really slowly. And then, um, you know, there's sort of uh, systems of society, whether it's, uh, you know, in civilization, whether it's the governments or the religions or, or the infrastructure change a little bit more quickly. And then technology changes very quickly and art and fashion and things like that change super quickly. And so I'm just very interested in like that, that sort of like the very sort of event horizon where things are changing really quickly, hmm. meaning it's a constant creative destruction. Like something amazing is created and then it dies out and something different, amazing is created and it dies out. And I think there's so much to learn at that intersection of where art touches like all aspects of, of the world. So I'm sort of fascinated by um, movies and, and, and what it takes to be a, a really good director um, of a movie or a series. And so if I could ever find, uh, you know, some movie director who I could shadow on a project, I feel like that would be really informative to, to my process and the way I hopefully would evolve my thinking of the way the world works. I'm so fascinated by all this. Like a lot of the, the things that you're describing right now, looking at the arts to kind of predict like where the futures go. And a few people I've just been obsessed with recently, like Quincy Jones, Rick Rubin, the legendary music producers. Um, you, you, you mentioned films though. Have you picked up Christopher Nolan, um, the inception, uh, creator? He has a book that he basically like maps out some of his thinking on the movies early on or anything. I'm wondering if you've picked that up. No, but I, I would definitely check it out. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll write that down right after this and check it out because that sounds right, right up my alley. Um, I do think like one of the funny places to do this is the um, the uh, there's the, you know the master classes, yeah. And there's a lot of um, directors. You know, David Lynch has, has got a fascinating one. Um, you know, Danny Elfman, the composer who's worked with Tim Burton a lot. Um, there's, there's like a ton of them, and so I sort of love watching those because these it's just a totally different way a different process totally different than investing um you know there it's just this sort of look into somebody's heart and they're trying to like create this pure thing but then all these forces are working against that <laughs> you know whether it's the business side of movie yeah. making or creative conflicts in the process or just it just seems like a miracle that any quality i think it's one of the things people don't understand about art is it's like really hard like to create something that really is quality like just real quality just un, like just a glimpse into someone's just pure creation that they had in their heart and their mind is it's incredibly difficult the amount of work that goes into that it looks like easy because you just see the end product you're like oh that's it's art so it's easy and uh, but the stuff's just so complex, and I think there's a lot of lessons to pull out of that for the business world and the and 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 the investing world. Brad, after this, I'm going to send you a, a bunch of stuff. You're going to shoot me for just. It's gonna, I think it's going to send you down some rabbit holes uh, in terms of that. But but if one of the things you mentioned a minute ago that I think about all of the time is quality, and I would love for you just to. I know there's not a great definition at all for quality. I just want to know how you think about quality <clears throat> in terms of what you do, though. Yeah. So we, when we, and we talked about quality and, and complexity investing and we, 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 Brent and I think of quality uh, in terms of the, the Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance definition. So the, the Persig concept of, of quality, which, you know, it's a little bit, I think you can interpret that. I think everybody interprets that 
definition of quality in a different way. What it what quality is for me personally is is this sort of non-dualistic collapse of the like the two sides of something. So both the rational and irrational and recognizing that there are these, these two elements to everything. And that if something is just purely rational, it's lacks a certain element. And if something's purely irrational, it lacks a certain element. But this idea of like, you know, that there can be, um, uh, something artistic about motorcycle maintenance, for example. So motorcycle maintenance should be very rational. It's like I have a, I have a book, and this is the part that's broken, and here's how I fix it. But that there can be a sort of non-dualistic element to that, and I think these non-dualisms are sort of all over the world. But we're we're just particularly in the West, we are just really raised as dualistic thinkers, so subject object and. And and uh, and I think it's that collapse of the subject object of the, uh, it's like all kinds of ways you can think about it. So like Damasio, who's been on your podcast, thinks of uh, sort of the mind, the collapse of the mind and the body, so that the body is not separated from the the mind. That the uh, uh, there's a lot of concepts around that. So that's quality for me is when you can take both elements of this. So you can call it the art and the science uh, coming together as one. Uh, that is what I think creates quality. When I see something, I go, "Oh, that's there's like a, a, a quality to this." It's sort of this this really hard you know, word word to define, but that's how I think about it. I'm laughing because you're like you can see yourself visually trying to like put your hands on it. Uh, I'm, I'm shopping for a dining room table right now, and it's so funny just the different elements of quality. You can feel quality in in certain yeah. tables. There's just a, a different element of that. Um, it's just, it's just there, very what's what's. Yeah, it was easier to see the the absence of quality. So sometimes you can see something, <laughs> and I think that's where just to try, to try and get um, uh, to sort of tie it back to investing or building a business is um, it's you know it's not you know it's not purely rational. It's not purely predictable. It's just some combination of skill and luck. It's some combination of planning and and being open to things that can change. And it's you know, when you think about if you're creating a product, you're creating a portfolio, there are quality products and quality portfolios, and there are portfolios that lack quality, you know, that 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 don't have the right characteristics. And so it's just, I think it's people find a different way of interpreting that. But the important thing is just to be thinking about it. Just, is there a higher quality, is there a more quality way to do this? And if you're at least thinking about it, you're in the right territory. And if you're not paying attention to it at all, that's where I think mistakes get, get made or you end up having a lot more bad luck than, than good luck. Yeah, Brad, one of the things I appreciate there is your ability to ask yourself and the team very good questions, right? Like, is there a better way to do this? I'm wondering for you, are there any other like really foundational questions that have been helpful for you in your, in your own life or even how you run the company? I know it's a, a broad question throwing you on the spot. I'm just wondering if there's anything that comes to mind for you. Yeah, let me think for a moment. So questions, questions that we ask. Um, it's sort of a cop-out answer, but it's it's just, it's trying to figure out what the right questions to ask are. I think not enough time is spent on that. We just go into something saying, here's the things I need to figure out in order to understand this. But what you want to do, and it comes back to these pre-mortems, is say, what questions am I not asking? And it's different 
for every investment we look at, for every you know business decision we make, for every client relationship we go into. Um, but it's a lot of uh, you know what can go wrong and what I said earlier about what can go really right and making sure that you don't stop, you try and hopefully try and stop the things that go, can go wrong, but you don't stop something from going really right. And um, I'm sort of always asking myself like, what are the questions I'm not asking? There's the question is there, and I'll look back on this three years from now when I know what what ended up actually happening. I say, well, if I'd asked that question, I would have figured this out, but I didn't. So, what was that question? Yeah, you want better answers in life. You can start asking some better questions. Yeah, I love just compiling an ongoing document of just like really thoughtful, deep questions that help me get to the root of things a bit more. It's very informative for me. One, one thing I want to jump back into is just biology, um, how that combines with kind of shooting down our own biases. And so what I mean by that is I, I would love to dive into what you've learned from ants. And you had this line in your paper, and all this is going to be linked up. The relentless pursuit of productivity at the expense of resilience has been the dominant business philosophy for decades. And then you say ants have survived millions of years by not sacrificing resilience in favor of productivity. So I would love for you to just dive into what you learned from ants that have been really impactful for how you think about the world. Yeah. Um, so this gets back to these sort of biological examples. So there are certain you know, insects, you find a lot of them in insects. So ants and bees are really good examples of this where they, uh, so, so the interesting thing about ants is about half of the, it depends on the species, but at any given time, about half of the ants are out wandering around trying to find food or whatever it is they're looking for pretty much always food. Um, <clears throat> and uh, half the ants are back in the ant colony. And so if there's like a flash flood or, or an anteater comes along, um, you know, half, half the ants might be dead, but half are still there and they can just rebuild back. And so most companies you come across are, and I think this comes out of like a lot of industrial age analog thinking sort of which by which I mean linear thinking and not understanding the nonlinear element of it are really are constantly optimizing. So they're going to be like, hey, what's the exact percentage of ants that should be out? And they're going to have, you know, 90% of the ants out at all time and only 10% back in the colony or you know, whatever the number is. Um, but then that makes it really fragile. So the more optimized the system is, the more fragile or brittle it becomes to, to stress. And so, so that's something that we see. You want to have this right balance of optimization and uh, elements of freedom. And this is true of a company. It's true of, you know, in your personal life, you want to create the space to, to think openly and to think about new things. And, and most times systems are optimized for, so I would say that, optimizing just solely for resilience or solely for um, uh, outcome, you just end up missing things. And so when a disruption happens, you get disrupted. Or a great idea comes along. Uh, we see this at companies all the time where someone has a great idea and it just just gets lost in the institutional inertia and it never happens. And that person leaves and goes and start a company. And so you know, Amazon's a great example and this is the one we used in the paper in complexity investing a decade ago is uh, they've done a really good job optimizing the parts of the business that should be optimized, like the supply chain. But then in the other parts of their business where, you know, in sort of their AWS stacks, highly optimized, but in the other parts of their business, they're really flexible and they run a lot of experiments and they fail fast and they, you know, have all these uh, different elements um, 
to, to that that sort of creates this optionality that creates all these new businesses and all the businesses that they didn't create we haven't heard about because they failed and or we have heard even about some of their failures and so it's having this combination again of resilience and optionality and everything that you do that that you know that's the way biological systems are optimized and we think it applies to companies as well yeah I, i'm just glad you highlighted that example just because it is so interesting that we can study biologies in these things and a clear example is what you brought up there with the ants um that really inform how the systems that we operate in as well uh how they operate so i just thought that was really helpful one thing i'm really intrigued about that you seem to write a decent amount about is involving your decision making and the ability to be present in the moment so i'll bring up a, a russell ackoff line that i love i have no interest in forecasting the future only in creating it by acting appropriately in the present and i'm wondering how you think about being present in the moment to make better decisions yeah i think this is kind of everything and it's the hardest thing and i'm not good at it and i don't know anybody who's really great at it um but if you're constantly trying <clears throat> or at least aware of how hard it is to actually pay attention <laughs> to what's going on i mean it's a, the answers are almost always there um, they're almost always right in front of us and that's where it comes to like asking the right you know when you feel, if you can ask the right questions you can realize that the the answers are right there but being just present really is creating that space it's making sure that your day is not like 100% optimized for for time management that you've got sort of hours in there to 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 think in in sort of randomly and in different directions and explore different areas and bring in new information and do things in a different way than you normally do them and it it's just really hard to be present we're pulled in in so many ways and so to create that breath and that space to to pause and just say what what are we really doing here what is the question we're trying to answer um what might the answer be how can we think about this differently what's right in front of our face that we're not seeing um and so there's a lot of you know i think like there's two professions that i think are are the most interesting to study to try and learn this and it's um one is stand up comedy and one is um magic professional magicians so both um both of those are highly observational um profession so in many ways the job of the stand up comedian is to find something obvious that nobody noticed and pointed out you know and then it's funny uh and that's that's a, that's a wildly um uh dumbing down of what what comedy as an art for, art form is but a lot of it is that it's just saying hey everybody here's this thing that's really obvious that you're you're not paying attention to isn't that funny um and and also you have to be very present as a comedian performing on stage because it's a live performance and they all go differently and there's the interplay between the the audience and the material that's being presented that you need to sort of constantly adjust to so stand so studying stand up comics is an interesting way to learn like what is it how, how did that person notice that thing hmm. like how are they able to see that what what is it what are what's in their routines that they're doing that allows them to to notice these things that other people aren't noticing and figure out why something might be funny um and then magicians is 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 slightly different cuz cuz magic really takes advantage of cognitive bias it's you know something is happening right in front of your face that you're not seeing I mean there's nothing there's no real magic it's all a trick you know it's all something in the palm uh, it's all something behind the curtain it's all something uh and, and they're able to just redirect your attention very momentarily for a microsecond and you miss what happened 
but it was all right there. There's yeah. nothing that you can't figure out. There's nothing you can't, I mean, there's some really incredibly complex magic tricks that, that, that are hard to figure out, but there's nothing that's unfigure outable because somebody figured it out. Some human created a way to do this. So, you know, that, you know, that there's a way that they did it. Um, and, and, and so studying those two things, I think is, is, you know, really interesting. Um, and, and so there's a lot of great magicians who, you know, you can sort of track down and, and see where they've talked about some, some of these things. And of course there's a lot of standup comedians that you can track down as well. And I think those are two of the things I've found most helpful in trying to think about being present beyond the really obvious one, which is some form of mindfulness or meditative practice, which is really the best way to, to develop some new patterns in your brain to sort of break out and be open to, to the present. Um, the, the one that um, I think I mentioned in the, um, our paper uh, time travel to make better decisions is Locke Kelly, who has a, a form of, of, uh, of mindfulness that resonates the most with me. And it is this, um, this concept of awareness. And so we talk about <clears throat> overcoming cognitive bias by being present. The way that I conceptualize it is pe pe people think they have five senses, the traditional, you know, sight, sound, um, taste, um, touch and smell. Um, but I start thinking of it as like seven senses. So the sixth and seventh sense are thinking and feeling. And we often think that what we are is our thoughts and our feelings but really we're just the thing that is aware of our thoughts and feelings. So just that I'm aware of uh, the temperature in this room and the screen that I'm looking at, I'm also aware of the thoughts running through my head and the feelings that are in my head and also in my body, but I'm not any of those things. I'm not the temperature in this room, just like I'm not my thoughts. I'm the, the this awareness of all seven of these sensory inputs coming in. And that's, <clears throat> um, I think, foundational to the way Locke, Locke Kelly uh, thinks about the world. And he's got some a couple of great books and some courses. And that's the, the discipline, the mindfulness discipline that's been most helpful to me in terms of can I be present or try and try. Like, it's just a little bit harder to be present. It's really hard. So well, Brad, now you have me really interested. Uh, I, I know there, there's no one right way to do something here. I'm just actually, I, I'd love to go a little bit further here on your learning process. I think anyone who's been listening to this, the the uh, the breadth of different people you've mentioned thus far, clearly you are a voracious learner. Your curiosities expand multiple domains. I'm also wondering how you think about this in terms of each day, right? Like you said, you've got to be able to create time for space so you have some breath, things like that. What does an actual day look like for you? And what are the sources that you're trying to consume just to get better information? Yeah, it's, um, I'd like to pretend there's not like a typical day, but there's a pretty typical day. But um, because of working in the stock market, the day has to start early. I just have to be aware of did new information come in that I have to, that we have to look at objectively and does it change our view on anything and so when we own a lot of positions there's just a, a lot of that basics um beyond that we try to pull ourselves out of the the noise of, of information around the stock market so <clears throat> we try to like not do earnings reports in real time if if we can if nothing major happened we try and create like some space 
between like when a company reports earnings and when we look at it, like maybe we look at it the next week. If something important happens, we'll look at it in real time as it's as it's going on, obviously. But otherwise, we just the creating that space between the event and when you think about the event, and you analyze the event is a good way to try and take some of the bias out of the process and be a little bit more present. So, but there's part of that just like I have to take in the information that's happening because we're investors and investing is a real sometimes a real time situation that you have to deal with. Um, but then it's just um, just just reading a lot. And um, used to when I started out in the industry. <clears throat> It was like, um, there's a trade magazine for every industry. Like every industry has trade press who write about it and who put on conferences that are just for the people in that industry. And there's just thousands upon thousands of them. And so we used to get stacks and stacks of industry trade magazines and just read them and be like, oh, this person said something interesting. I'm going to try and call that person and see what's going on. And now it's it's to- it's different. Those Obviously, those things are all online. People are doing YouTube videos. People are doing podcasts. There's all these sorts of different information. So I try and just create like a, like a, like a potpourri of like reading trade magazines, watching YouTube videos, listening to podcasts. And for me, it's like the the dots are always out there to be connected. Can I figure out how they connect? And so I'll just sort of take note of like, oh, that's the third time I've heard something about this new technology in the last week, that's kind of interesting. And I'll sort of make a mental note or a physical note, and then I'll start looking for information there. And usually there's nothing there. And it's really trying to separate what is uh, everything's opinion. Like there's very few actual facts that you can come across in the world. Um, Everything I've said today is just opinion. I don't know that there's anything factual about what I've said today on this podcast. I hope some of it is, but I, you know, time will tell. So it's basically taking in a piece of information and saying, is this opinion or is there something like objective here? And it's very rare when you come across something where you go like, oh, this feels like there's some objectivity to this. There's like something, there might be something here. And that's what I like about complex systems is it, 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 it helps me get at what is objective and throwing out what is just sort of noise in the system. <clears throat> and then part of my process is writing this weekly newsletter and that kind of is my process. It's like I read a zillion things and listen to a lot of things and watch videos and I sort of filter it down to what I think might be kind of interesting. And then I write it down and I think about it some more and I try and tie it to things I've thought about in the past. And then it goes out on Sundays um, to anybody who, who wants it. And then I get usually interesting feedback from that. It helps me think about, and that that that's my process, which is, you know, I think, different than um, a lot of people do that is basically what I'm doing is open. Like you can see my process because I put it out um, uh, every Sunday for, for people to see and not everything's in there, but pretty much everything is, is at some point makes it into that or a white paper we write or collaborate on. And, and then it is making sure there is that space. So I'm not, um, I'm totally fine if in the middle of the day I need to, you know, watch a movie, <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, get outside or, or whatever it is to just like, be like, okay, I'm in some kind of pattern. I've got to go find some other space to try and, to try and think about this. And, um, whatever that is for people, a lot of times it's, you know, physical activity or it could, could be a mindfulness practice or just, just getting out of, you know, you've got to, I don't know that you need to have that 
every day. I don't need, I don't know that it needs to be scheduled, but you've got to have, if, if you're, you just got to have the space. Is that just you know, for whatever? Yeah. Is that, is that just more intuitive knowing that you've learned how you operate and you can kind of sense that uneasiness or when you need to get outside, when you need to go meditate, something like that? No, it's almost like you have to force it. Cause I think if I didn't oh, really? do it, I just would sit, I would just sit and, <laughs> and, and read, um, uh, just did not get up and do it. So you have to, you just have to just, that's why like, cause you have to leave for me. It's like, I have to leave big blocks in my calendar where it's like, yeah, of course everybody wants to, to fill it up. But I just know like, no, I'm not, you know, when we went to schedule this, I said, I said, I'm typically free, yeah. you know, the, these mornings every week. Cause those are my blocks that I just make sure on a week to week basis. I keep open, um, just always open and only schedule something maybe a week out when I have to in those slots. So, so I do think like putting it, um, you know, putting a block on your calendar and then making sure you're actually doing something different during that time period, not just watching that block in the calendar go by while you're still doing the same thing, but actually, but actually just, just trying to, you know, it's like the, 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 the cliche is like the, you know, you're standing in the shower and you have this light bulb moment because your brain is, you know, you've got to get your brain somehow off of default mode and just, sort of wandering and to create those moments for the brain to wander. Yeah. You got to let that. I don't, I don't think I'm very good at it. I just try to try to do it. So, well, based on some of the things you've written and some of the decisions you've made, uh, I, I think, I think you've done a pretty good job tapping into the, the subconscious and kind of understanding some things that most people aren't seeing. Speaking of that, what are you thinking about currently, uh, in, in terms of what you're trying to solve or what you're trying to think about moving forward here into the future? Is yeah. there anything you're really wrestling with? <clears throat> I do think there's we we there are pivot points in the world that are usually only visible in hindsight, but it appears we might be at a pivot point now. And and th there's been kind of the last forty years of the information age. So if we sort of start with the rough arrival of the personal computer in the late seventies and early eighties, as let's just call that the start of the information age. You can, there's there's a lot of different flags you could put on the ground. I could say it was the, <clears throat> maybe the commercialization of the internet 25 years ago. Um, but somewhere in the last 40 years, there's been this shift and a lot of things were happening as digital technologies became more mainstream and more useful. Um, and those other things that were happening were we were going through a wave of globalization. Um, so taking advantage, comparative advantage of different labor costs around the world. Uh, we've been in this accommodative interest rate environment where effectively since the early 80s, rates with some some variability have been coming down until recently. Uh, we've been in this low inflationary period. We've been in a period of kind of stable but positive population growth. So all that's been the backdrop for the last 40 years. And I say, well, what about the next 40 years? It's like, well, the information age element is accelerating very quickly. And I don't like, sort of even hesitate to use the word, the term AI, but it's a great blanket term to just say these information systems are becoming smarter, more useful, more involved, more automated, and more decisions are going to be made by them with very nonlinear outcomes. Very unpredictable. If we thought the last 40 years was hard to predict, I think the next 40 will be wildly hard to predict because the because as things get faster, um, Jeffrey West talks a lot about this, um, uh, you know, the, the cycles have almost in complex systems almost have to happen faster and faster. It's sort of the way they work. 
and you reach this point where things are just like going too fast. And so we get a lot of nonlinear outcomes. So that's going to be going on. Um, as I mentioned, we've had this, this sort of 40 years of globalization that seems to we've sort of hit peak global trade in 2008, actually. It's been kind of flattish since then. So globalization hasn't isn't going to be the force in the economy that it has been. I don't think. Maybe it will be. Um, uh, you know, I have no view on interest rates, but we know they've been really helpful forty for forty years. They may or may not be accommodative to growth in the world over the next forty years. And then I also mentioned we've had this sort of stable, growing population. Um, which we don't really have in any more, certainly in most developed worlds where you have declining populations, um, birth rates are below the replacement rate um, pr pretty much everywhere now at this point outside of uh, South America and Africa. And so um, what is a world where the labor force isn't growing anymore? You know, what does that look like? We haven't, sort of in modern times, we've not experienced that. And so those are all different things. So I'm wondering, is it a pivot point or am I just telling a story? So I'll spend a lot of my time over the next few years trying to figure out, is this a pivot point? And if it is, where can we see, um, have a chance at seeing what the next 40 years could look like? And I suspect we'll find that answer where I mentioned earlier at this intersection of art and technology and where wherever things are changing the fastest, that will likely be where the evidence emerges of where this pivot point is going towards. And there may be no pivot point. What we've been doing for the last 40 years may just be the path that we're still on for the next 100 years. I don't know. Um, but what's interesting is you can go back to movies really as far back as the 70s, but especially the early 90s when like the, the internet was in the air. So kind of at the leading edge, if, if you were, um, you know, you know, a subscriber to PC World Magazine or whatever, you you could just see like, oh, there's things, cool things being created in the early 90s. And that stuff seeps into the culture because um, a lot of people interested in technology are interested in the arts. And so you can see a lot of movies around 91, 92 that gave us all the things we have today. Like if you'd said, oh, this movie accurately predicted the future, if you could pick which movie that was in 1991, um, you know, that's where we are today. And so is that movie out there? Is that TikTok out there? Is that is that piece of artwork out there today to someone, you know, I think, you know, people more involved in art than business just have this better ability to see where the world's going, maybe because they're pushing the world, you know, maybe because art influences us more than business. So art is pushing us in that direction. So where is art changing right now. Art's going through a lot of changes right now, particularly video is going from this sort of long form storytelling to this short form. Um, uh, just, you know, music is changing. Everything is seems to be changing. And that's why it feels like a pivot point. But I think you can go back in time and say what I'm saying almost about any, any moment. So I don't know if it is yet, but it's just, you know, where I'm just trying to spend a lot of time thinking about where are things changing most rapidly and what is that change and is it going to stick, you know, cause you can start to watch for evidence of, Oh, this is a change that's sticking. This is becoming a defining change in behavior. Um, so that's what I'm looking for.
No, I love hearing how you think things through uh, and what you're looking at. Brad, this is such an honor for me getting to kind of just pick your brain and hear how you think about things. If you could do this long form conversation, sit down with anyone dead or alive, who would you love just to be able to ask questions of for an entire evening? Oh, um, well, probably <laughs> to arrive to somebody like I sort of been talking about coming in more out of the, out of the art world than anything. Um, you know, just someone who's writing and sort of practical life philosophy and comedy um, has always resonated with me as Kurt Vonnegut. And uh, I, I just, I almost never come across something of his and I don't go, boy, that totally accurately describes something that's very obvious that people aren't saying. You know, he has that sort of element of a stand-up comic, but also a great storyteller. And I would have loved to um have just learned more about his philosophy and everything he went through. Um, and, you know, I think that that would teach me a lot and uh, about my process and the way I think about the world. Um, absent that, I would flip the question around and say, rather than anybody dead or alive, I would just love to talk to anybody from the future. Hmm. You know, if I could talk to myself or, or any, just any single person alive 50 years from now and just, say what happened like what was possible because i think we're so we're really bad at knowing you know we tend humans just t we tend to be skeptical and pessimistic and cynical and but we know that it's optimism that always wins so yeah, i just sort of want to know like how how good can things really get like what what can we really do what problems can we solve and how did we solve them and and so uh if there's ever a time traveler that that i could talk to i would just just anybody just love to know what the future is like brad that's an epic answer i'm pretty sure no one's ever said uh i want to talk to someone from the future so i love that um obviously we're gonna have everything that you've mentioned here some of your great pieces uh that you've written <clears throat> we'll have everything like that linked up where they can stay connected with you uh anything else you want the listeners knowing or any place you want them staying connected with you no you know our, our website um uh nzs capitals got uh, all of our white papers you can find our our, our newsletter there and um you know, that's the, the best way to, to keep up with us. So fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us on what got you there. Thanks, Sean. You guys made it to the end of another episode of what got you there. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.